My name is Alan Carr. I'm pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Lenore, North Carolina. Thank you for visiting our webpage and for taking the time to listen to one of our sermons. We hope this sermon, which was preached in our pulpit, will be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of the Word of God. I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Haggai, the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. Pretty much a forgotten book. In fact, it's so forgotten that most people don't know where it is. So I'll give you a clue. You'll find it between Zechariah and Zephaniah in the Old Testament. Does that help? No? We'll start at Matthew and keep turning left. You'll go Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. Third book from the end in the Old Testament. Not too difficult to find. So if you can't find Haggai, you probably can't find Zephaniah either. So um, it's on page 956 in my Bible, if that helps. I don't know if that does or not. But, uh, anyway, the book of Haggai. I want to begin a short series. This is a very short book. It's only 38 verses, two chapters. You can read it in less than 10 minutes. And I want to spend the next couple of weeks in Haggai talking to you about this idea that the time is now. The time is now. And I want to read the first chapter this morning and preach as much as I can of that to you today. So if you have your Bible in the book of Haggai, everybody found that? The book of Haggai. You may pronounce it Haggai, but it's Haggai. And uh, let's find chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read all 15 verses of that chapter. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand for a moment as we read the text, and then we'll bring the message that's on my heart today. Haggai 1.1 In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? And this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You look for much, and lo, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I call for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains, upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Well, there's a new thought. They heard from God and they obeyed. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. I want to begin with a little brief introduction, if I can, to this book, and I've got to delve into some of uh, Jewish history here. But I would like to make an observation as I begin, and it's this. The location of this book in the Old Testament is not accidental. In fact, it is, it's a clue to the importance of the book of Haggai. Now, the book of Haggai is the third from the last book in the Old Testament. And it's placed there on purpose because the time period it covers covers the time near the end of Old Testament history. And this book is one of the easiest books in the Bible to accurately date. We know from verse 1 that Haggai prophesied in the second year of King Darius of Persia. We also know that he gave his first message on the first day of the sixth month in the second year of his reign. Scholars tell us this happened on August the 29th, 520 B.C or about 2,500 or so years ago. Now, 520 B.C. is at the very end of Old Testament history. In fact, the only books written after Haggai were Nehemiah and Malachi. And in order to understand the message of the book, you and I need to get a grasp of several important points of biblical history. About 400 years previous to Haggai writing, Solomon, when he was king of Israel, he built a magnificent temple in Jerusalem. He built it of expensive materials, and people traveled from all over the ancient world to come and see the Jewish temple. In fact, the Jews regarded that temple as their greatest national treasure. They revered the temple not because of its beauty, but because it was the place where God dwelled with man. It was symbolic of the presence of God among his people. And as such, it represented the heart and soul of the Jewish religion. But in the centuries which followed King Solomon, the people repeatedly turned away from God in favor of idols. As a result, God eventually brought the Babylonians upon Israel to judge the people and to purify them from their sins. And this brings us to a very important date in Bible history, and that's 586 B.C. In the year 586 B.C., the Babylonian army, under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, defeated Judah. They destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. They laid waste to the city and utterly destroyed Solomon's temple. In fact, there was nothing left of Jerusalem when the Babylonians were finished. The city was a pile of of smoking rubble. That's all that was left. Meanwhile, many of the Jews themselves were taken captive into Babylon, where the psalmist said they hung their harps upon the willow trees and wept for their fallen nation. Now, 50 years passed. 
And then God raised up a new king in Babylon. By this time, it's the Persian Empire. And Sirius, Cyrus rather, becomes the king of Persia. And he permits the Jews to take some of their people and return home under the leadership of a man by the name of Zerubbabel, who's mentioned in verse number 1. In 538 B.C., Zerubbabel took 50,000 Jews and led them from Persia back to Judah, and there they found shocking devastation. Their nation had ceased to exist. There was nothing left but rubble and ruins. But upon their arrival, the first thing they did in 536 B.C., is to set about rebuilding the temple of God. And they relayed the foundation of the temple, and they did so with great celebration. But then suddenly the Samaritans, who lived nearby, who opposed the rebuilding of the temple, they rose up to fight the Jews. The the Samaritans did not want the Jewish temple rebuilt, nor did they want the Jews returning to prosperity. And because of their constant opposition, the Jews stopped the rebuilding process and never got started again. They put their hand to other tasks. They rebuilt their homes. They rebuilt commerce. They rebuilt their cities. They were trying to start a nation from scratch, and so they planted their fields, and they harvested their crops, and life began to resemble something amounting to a normal pattern of activity. But there was one problem. The temple of God was still in ruins. The foundation they had built previously was now covered in weeds. And as they passed it by, that temple stood as a mute reminder of their failure to take care of God's house. Sixteen years passed. And now we come to 520 B.C., the time of the prophecy of Haggai. We know nothing about this man except what's said in this book and two obscure verses in the book of Ezra. He's pretty much unknown to us. But God raises him up to deliver four prophetic sermons over the course of five months from August to December in 520 B.C. As I've already mentioned, it's a very short book, but the message here is very powerful. Because Haggai's words are blunt. He is plain spoken, he is direct, he is vivid, he pulls no punches, and he wastes no words. He's not into platitudes, and as one fellow, Brother Ronnie, said this morning, feel-good isms, he just tells the truth. Haggai's got one goal in mind. He has one thought on his mind, and that is rebuild the temple and rebuild it now. And with that background in mind, that brings us down to our text. And I want to just kind of introduce my thought and move into the message and get as much as I can today. Now what we encounter when we come to the book of Haggai is a people who are trapped in a cycle of apathy toward God. A cycle of apathy. In fact, apathy can be defined as a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. The word literally means to not care. These people were living their lives, but they cared not about the house of God. Somebody said the nice thing about apathy is you don't have to exert yourself to show you're sincere about it. And isn't that true? I mean, you can just not care and things kind of click along and nothing ever changes, but apathy is no laughing matter. Because when we are unconcerned, uninvolved, and disinterested, it is a window into the condition of our hearts. 
Now, these Jews we're talking about here, they cared about many of the issues of life. They cared about themselves. They cared about their families. They cared about their future. They were taking good care of themselves. They built their nice homes. They worked their fields. They raised their children. Yet they were apathetic toward God and toward the house of the Lord and even toward the worship of God. And into this situation uh, dominated by apathy, God sends the prophet by the name of Haggai. And Haggai, the first message he delivers is not a popular message because he hits head on the apathy of the Jews. He exposes their careless indifference toward God and His house. Now I want to take this first chapter today and preach to you about bags with holes. Bags with holes. And I want to share some lessons which present themselves in this text. You say, preacher, this has little to do with us. It happened 2,500 years ago. But I want to tell you this message is as fresh as today's headlines. Because we need to hear what Haggai has to say. Because whether we like it or not, the conditions which prevailed in his day still prevail in our day. So with that in mind, let's talk about bags with holes and notice some of the lessons we can derive from Haggai chapter 1. In verses 2 through 4, I want to talk to you about a culture of apathy. Again, from the very start of the book, Haggai pulls no punches. You'll notice there in verse number 2, he says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, a couple of issues we ought to take note of there. One thing I would notice is how God refers to His people. God does not say in verse number 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, My people say. He says, This people say. Now, they're His people. But the problem is they're not living or acting like they're His people. Because they are putting themselves ahead of God. And I can tell you that God was not content with this arrangement. Notice also what the people said about the house of God. They said the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Sixteen years had passed since they began construction on the house of God, but they abandoned the new foundation, and now 16 years later, they're saying it's still not time to do this work. For 16 years, the house of God had been abandoned and forsaken and neglected by God's people. Now, it's easy to understand this, I suppose, on some levels, because what they're doing here is making excuses. They intended to build God's house. They had every intention of going forward with that, but they never quite got around to it. They were afraid of the opposition they might face, and so they turned their focus inward, and they selfishly built their own homes, and they presumptuously claimed to know better than God when the temple should be built. Now, if we were hanging around with those Jews, we could probably imagine some of the excuses they would have put forward. One might have said, well, you know, God wants us to take care of our own families, doesn't He? Some other one might have said, the job's too big and we'll never finish it. 
Someone else might have said, well, it's not our fault the temple got destroyed, and so it's not our job to rebuild it. Someone else probably said, well, if we don't build it, somebody else will. Someone might have said, well, we need to pray about it some more. Another guy may have said, we just don't have the money for this project. I can hear another one say, I'm not convinced that we need a temple anyway. Somebody else might have said, the time isn't right for us to be involved in this. And another one, I'm sure, said, we are too busy to add anything else into our lives right now. They were looking for a better time to do the work. They were looking for an easier way to accomplish the work. But the result in every case was the same. Delay, delay, delay. They kept putting off what they knew they should do. Now, it's always easy to make excuses when you don't want to obey God. Is it not? But the crux of the matter is this. They hadn't rebuilt the temple because they didn't want to. Had they wanted to, they would have had it built after 16 years. But because they didn't want to, they didn't do it. Now, someone reading this might wonder, what in the world is so important about a temple anyway? Why in the world is God concerned about His house, and why does He want a temple? I've already said this, but in the Old Testament, the temple represented the presence of God on earth. God's reputation was at stake. When the pagans around them looked at the Jews who had no interest in rebuilding the temple of God, the pagans would have said, well, they must not love their God. After all, they're not building His house. They're leaving His house in ruins. Also, these Jews were teaching their children that God doesn't matter. Rebuilding the temple was a major issue to God, and it should have been to His people, but it wasn't. That's a sad indictment. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai and said to them in the next verse, verse 3, or verse 4, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie in waste? Now the word sealed there, a sealed house, is a paneled house. And then it refers to a very nice structure in a time when most people dwelt in little stone houses. These people were taking the time to cut down trees and to cut out lumber and to plane that lumber and to build nice homes, comfortable homes to live in. And Haggai confronts them. He says, is it time for you to live in your new house, your fine paneled house, when the house of God lies in waste. That means to be in ruins. Here's the thing. These people were concerned that they have the best. They were concerned about their comfort. They were concerned with making sure they had everything they needed, but they neglected God's house. And in essence, they left God homeless. Now you think about that. They had a nice dwelling. But because of their neglect, God was left without a home. You see, things are different now. In those days, God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. I know God feels everything, but God chose to manifest His presence in the Holy of Holies, in that temple, over the Ark of the Covenant. And because there was no temple, there was no Holy of Holies, there was no place for God to manifest His presence among His people. 
Today, God dwells in His children. He dwells in me. I'm saved. If you're saved, He lives in you. This church is not a temple. This is a building where the temples of God gather. In those days, the temple was essential to Jewish worship. God did not have a place to dwell on earth. And the problem here is a problem of misplaced priorities. Now we look at those folk and we say, man, we'd never do something like that. But we do. You see, God's house today doesn't lie in ruins. We have a nice church to attend and we try to take care of our property. Many give their time and their resources to be sure the needs are met here. But in a lot of ways, we are as apathetic as those people. And I could give you a whole, a whole bunch of areas where we are apathetic, but I'll settle for a, just a few. One, one place we're apathetic, I think, is we're apathetic toward God's Word. We endure preaching. Oh, we show up every now and then, and we make it through the sermon as tedious and as long and as deep as they are. But we do not respond to God's instruction. His commands, His appeals, or His desires. And many neglect His Word in their day-to-day lives. We become apathetic to this book. This is the Word of God. It is bread for our souls. It is food for our hearts. And we should feast in it. And when someone stands up to preach it, we ought to have our Bible open and follow along as they expound the Scriptures and then respond to what God tells us to do. But we're apathetic toward the Word of God. We're also apathetic toward the will of God. Because we know what God wants us to do. I mean, if you've been in church any any length of time at all, especially in this church, not just under me, but in the former pastors, you have heard what God wants you to do. But honestly, we refuse to do it. We know what God says, but we somehow don't care what God says. We'd rather do what we want to do instead. We about had a major fight at our house this morning. There was a three-year-old there. And everything you would say to her, she would say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I not want to do that. And every issue had to be forced. Sometimes that's how we act. We know what God wants, but we look at Him and we say, I not want to do that. Well, God will force the issue in His time. We're apathetic toward God's worship. Now, I'll just say this. We come to church when it's convenient, but when we come, we are content to be spectators and not participants. And here we're given at least three opportunities each week together with the people of God, but we don't take advantage of those like we should. In fact, we neglect them. Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday evening services are neglected simply because people don't want to come. That's the bottom line. You don't want to do it, so you don't do it, or you think you have something better to do. That's a shame. It's apathy. We're apathetic toward God's work. The world around us is dying without Christ, and yet we're not taking the gospel to them. And enlisting workers in the church to fill positions is, Brother Ronnie, it's like pulling teeth. It ought not be that way. People ought to be joyous to do something in the church, but even if they do take a job, there's no zeal, there's no enthusiasm, and there's no commitment. I'm just telling you, we're apathetic. 
We're apathetic toward God's wonder. I mean, we're not caught up in His glory. We're not excited about Him. It's the same old, same old. Let's go in. Let's make it through. Then let's go home. And then we'll come back and do it again next week. But when we encounter God in a service, or when we encounter God in our daily life, there's no glory in our soul. There's no sense of amazement about who He is. We're not moved by Him any longer. We are apathetic toward the glory and the wonder, the majesty of Almighty God. We've even lost the sense of wonder over what God has done in us. That's where we are. And in many ways, we're like the church in Laodicea. And here's what the Lord said to them. He said, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. The Laodiceans said, we have arrived. We are content. We're living life on our terms and we don't need anything. Who needs church? Who needs worship? Who needs all these rules and regulations? And who needs all of that stuff? But God looked at them and He said, What you don't know is you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. (laughs) Whether we want to admit it or not, we are apathetic, we are complacent, And we are satisfied. And until we recognize that and see it as individuals and even as a corporate body in the church, nothing will ever change. It's a culture of apathy. Let me touch on this. Notice the consequences of apathy. Verses 5 through 6, then 9 through 11. In an effort to call them back to their senses, God speaks to the prophet Haggai, and He says to them in verse 5, He says, Consider your ways. God wants them to ponder what's happening in their lives. He wants them to consider how they are living and what has happened because of the choices they've made. He wants them to understand that all the problems they're having in their nation are a result of their refusal to honor the Lord. Now the Jews felt as if God had abandoned them. In fact, they were blaming Him for the lack of fruitfulness in their lives. You pick this up kind of in verse 9. He said, you look for much and it came to little. And you brought it home and I did blow on it. I mean, everything they're out there working and they're doing their best, but nothing's coming of it. And surely they wondered what this, what is going on here. But the problem is not with God. The problem is with their disobedience. They had refused to honor God, and they're paying a high price because of it. And this is just a sobering reminder to us that actions have consequences. Actions have consequences. It's also a reminder that what happens in your heart affects every level of your life. Because these people pushed God out of the center of their lives, they were paying the price in every other area. 
They were farming, but there was no fruit. They were working, but there was no reward. There was plenty of action, but there was no satisfaction. And all their labor was amounting to nothing. All their efforts to care for themselves and their families turned into frustration. Everything was an exercise in futility. Every activity was a dead end. God put holes in all their bags and left them with nothing. And God's well able to do that today. Everything they touched turned to dust in their hands and slipped through their fingers before they could catch it. And they had nothing to show for their labor because God took it all away. Now these people had great expectations, again verse 9, but their dreams came to nothing. Why? Because they neglected God and they thought of themselves first. And then God did what was necessary to get their attention. In verses 10 and 11, God said, Therefore the heaven over you has stayed from dew, the earth has stayed from her fruit. He said, I call for a drought. God said, I did those things as a response to your neglect of my house. He said, Because you have turned against me in your heart, I have touched every other area of your life to bring you back. That's God's intention, to bring you back to where you ought to be. Now, God still does that. If you and I give God second place or third place, He's not going to be content with that. And God will do whatever is necessary to allow us to suffer the consequences of our actions so that we might be brought back to putting Him in first place. One reason God does this is because God wants to teach us that He will not be mocked. He will not have us claiming to know Him and claiming to love Him, and claiming to serve and represent Him, and yet showing signs of absolute neglect of Him. He won't have that. And in an effort to draw us back, God will convict us, and God will call us to repentance, and many times He'll use external circumstances to do that, and He'll do whatever is necessary to wake us up out of our apathy. If you want God to take everything away from you, then keep living like you are. Just keep neglecting Him. Keep neglecting His work. And He'll do what it takes to get your attention. But if you want to be successful, there's a plan for that too. The Bible says right there, Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. God said, you put me first, and I will take care of you. Well, notice this quickly. I know time's getting away. I'm having fun, aren't you? Notice in verses 7 and 8, then 12 through 15, notice the cure for apathy. Now, the time for waiting was over. That's Haggai's message. His prophecy was a call to action. God tells them to go to the mountain and gather wood and get busy building his house. And God says, if you will, if you will, I will be pleased and I will be glorified. And if they will honor him, his blessings will flow in their lives once more. Israel was suffering because they had failed to do the will of God. The time for talking about doing something was over. The time for waiting was over. The time of doing had arrived. And the only remedy for their condition was for them to stop making excuses and begin doing what God told them to do 16 years before. Now when Joshua, verse number 
uh, 12, when Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor, when they heard this prophecy, they led the people to obey God. They determined to do what God wanted done. And in verse 14, the Bible tells us that the people came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Charles Ryrie said about that verse, he said, Seldom has any sermon had such an immediate practical impact. Haggai preached his message on the first day of that particular term in, in Darius' reign. And 24 days later, the people went to work. I wish my sermons had the same enthusiastic response. You know what I mean? But two statements are made about Israel in verses 12 and 13, which ought to be noted. In verse 12, the Bible said, the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They recognized Him as their Lord. They recognized Him as the Sovereign One. They recognized Him as the One who is to be obeyed feared and worshipped. They obeyed God, and then it says they feared the Lord. That is, they developed a, a respectful awe of God that caused them to place Him ahead of every other consideration in their lives, and it caused them to do what God wanted them to do. And because they did this in verse 13, God said, I am with you. They repented of their sins. They put God first. They got busy doing what God told them to do. And God said, I'm going to bless you again, and I'm going to honor you with my presence. And all this happened because God, the Bible says, stirred up. God stirred up, verse 14, the spirit of the people. It's an important note. Because ultimately the work of God depends upon God. God has to give the orders. God has to give the energy to carry out the orders. He must give us the desire to carry out the orders. And He must stir up the people of God to do what He wants before anything will be done. In the end, God has arranged this whole moral universe so He gets the glory for everything good that's accomplished. Everything depends on Him. Yet, He holds us accountable to do His will. Yet, without His enablement, His will will never be done. Not only a mystery, but it's also a great encouragement because in the final analysis, everything depends on God. So the cure for apathy lies in our getting our priorities in the right order. God must be first. And when that is sorted out, everything else will fall into place. The people of Haggai's day were so busy trying to gain the whole world, they were in effect losing their souls. Jesus said, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? They made every excuse in the world for not doing God's work. And not all the excuses were wrong. But they were all sinful because they caused the people to push God from being the center and heart of their lives. That's the problem. 
They became the priority over God. And don't we do the same thing today? We allow everything in life to crowd God out of our lives. We so fill our calendars, there's no time left for Him. We're so intent on getting our rest, we have no time to worship. We're so busy with our lives, there's no time to work for Him. We allocate every dime we make so that there's nothing left to give for, to God. Oh, we have good intentions, but we never act on them. We talk about doing, but we never do. We think about when we were closer, but we never make a move to get back there. We're focused on self. When we should be focused on the Lord, that's our problem. That's how the lost world lives. But Jesus died to deliver us from that mentality. He died to save us from our sin and to save us from ourselves. And if we know Him, we should live like we know Him. And we should have a desire to put Him first. Jesus said the first commandment, the great commandment, was thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Oftentimes we don't do that. But when we love God more than we love anything else in life, we can keep our priorities in order. But when we fail to love Him first, we are guilty of breaking the first of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. When God is not the center of my life, you know who He is? Me. When I give my time to Me, when I give my first thought to me, when I give my first dollar to me, when I give my first moment to me, when everything is about me, I have become my own God, and I'm guilty of self-deification. I'm guilty of self-worship. I have, in effect, become an idolater. You say, preacher, that is so drastic. That is an utterly insane viewpoint. I'm sorry. Either God is God or you're God. One or the other. And I can tell you from experience, I can't do much as God. I'm a terrible God. I'm a horrible failure as God. I've tried it. It doesn't work. But He is a great God. He knows how to regulate. He knows how to make it all work. He knows how to bring it all together. Jesus said this about it. He said, no man can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other. Or he'll hold the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon or God and money. You can't serve God and other things. I'd say it this way, you can't serve God and yourself. There's got to be a choice made. It's you or it's him. And when it's him, you'll do what he wants you to do. When it's you, you do what you want to do. Help yourself. But I promise you, he'll poke holes in all your bags. He will. If you're His, now if you're not His, you just carry on, man. What you need to be born again. Just Hey, you need to be saved. Holy Ghost going to have to convict you, draw you to Jesus. But if you're God's, let me tell you, you can live however you want to live, but you're going to pay a high price when God's not first.
Well, these folk repented, praise God, and when they did, God blessed them again. And so it all comes down to what we want from life. Do we want the blessings of God, or do we want the chastisement of God? And it really depends on us, right? So what we all do is do what Israel did, and listen to God's command to consider our ways. Repent of misplaced priorities. Put God first, and God will turn cursing into blessing. But the thing is, most of us don't care that we don't care. We don't care and we don't care. I don't care. I don't care. There's a lot of things in life I really don't care about. You know, there are some things that happen, I don't care. It's not a big deal. You say, preacher, I don't like you. I don't care. You ain't the first. You ain't going to be the last. You get used to it after a while. You know, I wish you would, but on some levels, if you don't, that's between you and God. I can't do anything about it. But I should care about what God wants me to do. And I should care about my walk with God. And I should care about my mission in God's house. I should care about the job I've been called to do. I should care about spiritual things. And when I don't, that says there's something wrong in my heart. So the first step is admitting you're apathetic to begin with. But you don't care, you don't care. And if you don't care, you don't care. You're not going to care until God makes you care. But if you understand that you're complacent and apathetic and satisfied, you know what you ought to do? Repent. Repent. Now there's an, an old word. It means to change direction. Turn from that sin. Repent of it and go the right way and God will bless that. He will. He'll honor it. You say, preacher, what do you hope to accomplish today? I don't hope to accomplish anything, really. I have no goals other than preaching what God laid on my heart. What happens is up to Him, and ultimately it's between you and Him. I've already had to deal with this. And I recognize in my life there's a couple places where I've been apathetic. And I had to ask God to forgive me. I had to ask God to help me. I had to repent. And by the way, repentance isn't just a simple prayer in the altar. Repentance is a way of life. It's a turning and staying turned. So are you apathetic? Are you finding that all of your bags have holes in them? You know what you ought to do? You ought to make your way to God today. You ought to confess that apathy. And you ought to tell God, I'm sorry. And get up and change. Do something about it. These people repented and they built the house of God. What you going to do? It's between you and Him. It really is. You have been listening to a sermon from Calvary Baptist Church. Thank you for taking the time to visit our webpage today and to listen to our sermon. Please check back often for new content. We'd love to have you visit with us at Calvary Baptist Church. The church is located at 1369 Blowing Rock Boulevard Northwest in Lenore, North Carolina. Our Sunday morning worship begins at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m., and Wednesday night at 7 p.m., and you would be welcome at any of our services. Thanks again for listening, and may the Lord bless you is our prayer.